0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As you know, if you're a regular listener, you know we are ad free, sponsor free, and we rely on you to keep the show on the road. The best way to do that is clicking the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's in the podcast you're listening to right now. All we're asking you to do is click on the link, have a look through and see if there's an option that suits your budget. We appreciate every cent we get and it helps us keep these mics on and conversations going. And you get lots of extras for that, including our patron exclusives, access to our regular Sunday shows and the podcast as quickly as I can turn them around, including conversations we had recently with Dr. John Bissett, Dan Murray from the Business Post, and Hannah McCarthy joined us from the West Bank to discuss the protests, the anti-government protests in Israel and the bloodiest start to a year in terms of Palestinian deaths since the occupation began. All of those are available right now on that Patreon feed. So just try for a month. That's all we're asking really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And as promised, we are back talking about the controversial uh, planning bill that is massive planning bill that is winding its way through our uh, our the houses of our octus to uh, what has been called by some people a power grab. Others have described it as uh, deeply flawed. And then others have said, well, it's necessary given the state of the financial and uh, property crisis that the country uh, finds itself in. Martin, you want to say uh, something? Something. And
1: yet others have called it written by lobbyists, Tony.
0: Um, I, I, look, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. We, we've, we've already spoken to Attractive Rin uh, on, on this and her deep concerns about it. Lorcan Sir joined us to talk about the missing 6,000 homes that are in the uh, 30,000 that the government keep telling us all week that they've built. Some seems to be 6,000 of them. Don't have um, uh, the certificate to say that they're finished, but yeah. nonetheless, uh, we did touch on this as well. So we are delighted to be joined by solicitor and a partner at, Fred, at at Logue Solicitors, Fred Logue, It's been a while, Fred. How are you keeping?
2: I'm doing very well, lads. How are you?
0: Good, good. Listen, before we kick off, just just today, it's timely enough in many way in many ways, and it's kind of it has to be said, it's disheartening to see the state move to let the temporary moratorium on no-fault evictions lapse. And and that's what they've done. People keep talking about this eviction ban. Evictions were always possible through this period. It's important that we keep restating that. You know, if you weren't paying your rent or there's anti-social behavior, you could still be evicted. This was simply saying no-fault eviction. So if you were a good tenant paying your rent, you know, you should be allowed to maintain your tenancy. They've said no. That's no longer the case now. And um, Fred, just just from one one point of view on on this, in the wider legal sense, we're we're all being told, obviously, this can't be done. Do, do you do you feel disheartened as, as much as I do today?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm disheartened that uh, the the justification for things like this are a little bit thin. You know, like for example, for firstly, like a tenancy is that not a property right as well as the landlord? so um you know the the kind of the way it's presented is that it's it's property rights of landlords and tenants don't have rights which i think is not correct uh and it kind of reveals a wider way of operating of the state where they will say something can't be done uh, because of the constitution and then when people kind of challenge that or ask for an explanation the ag is wheeled out to basically give cover and the, you know the 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 AG says it can't be done therefore it can't be done and we can't tell you why it can't be done because the AG has said has told us about it and and that could never be revealed you know and like only a few weeks ago we had the AG report on the nursing home mm. charges scandal and that was published even before the ink was dry on it um so there's nothing really in principle that stops AG advice being being published.
0: No, sure. sure um, on on the on the AG's advice to on the um, to the to the cabinet on the nursing home scandal. I remember Pat Leahy was openly talking about it on on the Irish politics politics podcast nearly five days before it was due to be published.
2: Yeah, and I, when we talk about the planning bill, I'll, I'll, there's, there's there's more examples of it as well in terms of some of the very restrictive measures that are about to be brought in in the planning bill, and I'll, yeah. I'll you know I'll touch on that as well.
1: Do you think it's just a ploy, Fred, to get what they want across the line? If they want it, they'll talk about it. Uh, you know, if they want to get it across the line, if they're going to force it across the line, they just don't feel obligated to talk talk about
2: it. Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a way of shutting down debate. And I think that it kind of undermines the office of the AG. You're supposed to be an independent advisor, a legal advisor. So the AG doesn't really have a policy role. It's not their job to decide what's right or wrong. It's their job to say what's lawful or not lawful. And, uh, you know, and again, we get this, well, if we don't do it, there'll be legal action. But it's like the state faces legal action all the time. So,
1: and you know, fines, but, Fred, from Europe yeah, fa- but it, for failing to take action.
2: Yeah, well, if only we applied the same kind of cautious approach to avoiding legal action in terms of compliance in the environmental law and, you know, even other law, like immigration law. Uh, I think I think that'll be great but you know we seem to have a very reckless attitude to compliance uh with those and the uh the probability that there'll be enforcement whereas we're ultra conservative when it comes to other areas and there seems to be a bit of an asymmetry there
0: it's it's actually it's worth pointing out so for example we could Point to Derry Bryan Farm and, and uh, they the fines that the state have been have had to pay because of the, the bad planning process that took place around that and then flip it on the other side and say, well, the state don't want to do this because we'll have a legal challenge, because we heard people from the um the Irish Property Owners Association might take a challenge. Take the challenge, go ahead. And I would ta- I would ask everybody who's listening to this, go back and listen to what Joe Pina said to us yesterday from the Portuguese government on how they have balanced the rights of private property versus the right, to, the right to housing in this in the Portuguese constitution and how they're taking a stand. I'm quite willing to, I believe, quite willing to look, stare down the people who are going to take those challenges. And it does seem very much that he said they're, they're daring them to take some of these challenges because they want them tested. And, and, and I think that's a better way to take it forward.
2: Yeah. I, well, actually, I'm just looking at a tweet here from Gavin Riley that um, Patrick Ostolo TD from the Greens, has actually asked for um, doll time. To have a debate about whether the AG's advice should be published—that's a good move.
0: Well, well, Patrick, is uh, you—you uh, were involved with Patrick uh, in his successful uh, challenge of the CETA bill as well, Fred. So <laughs> well, <laughs> we, should have, we should have said that at the outset. You—you you, uh, deserve some credit. You've done the state some service, my friend.
2: Well, there's another um, example of something the AG said was was lawful, uh, and it turned out not to be lawful. So, and, and and that's not a criticism of the AG. Like the AG's advice—he's—he's he's an advisor. He's not doctor who so he can't go forward in time to see what what actually the result would be yeah, but like well, any legal advisor he gives advice he can't predict the future and sometimes his advice proves not to be not to have not to be correct so i think that that has to be knowledge as well uh, that yeah. just because he's advised something doesn't mean that it is actually going to play out that way
1: Patrick has actually come out quite strongly and said that there are legal opinions that this is constitutional and it should be allowed. So he's directly challenging the, the, um, I suppose, the advice of the Attorney General.
0: Can I remind listeners, if you were if you were a long-time listener, it must be nearly six years ago now, uh, Ed Honahan at the time was Master of the High Court, and he said that he thought it needed to be challenged because he believed the right to property rights should be challenged on the basis of, as Fred outside, a tenancy agreement gives you a right as well. And he thought that in, in EU parlance, you know, he'd love to see it tested. Anyway, we've gone well off that, but the s- simple fact is it needs to actually be tested, Fred.
2: Yeah, and like we, it's not just property rights. You have a right to a private and family life, which includes a mm. right to, you know, mm-hmm. your uh, your peaceful enjoyment of your home. And that's what that is in the constitution. And there's a case called, um, uh, case in County Clare, a traveler accommodation case that has actually, uh, kind of reinforced that right in Ireland, McDonough. So, um, you know, like in all of these things, it's a balancing of rights. And as long as you have enough safeguards to protect a disproportionate impact, then they generally have a wide discretion in the legislature to pass these these kind of uh, regulatory regimes which protect tenants. Uh, and the idea is that you, you can do that as long as you ha- have some mechanism to support genuine property needs. So, for example, if you need to sell the property to or you need to move back in or, you know, things like that. And I think they already exist. So... You know, obviously, a blanket ban on evictions probably wouldn't survive, hmm. but a ban on evictions where there are safeguards would, I think, survive. Particularly when everyone knows there's a there's a very very severe housing sh- shortage. Well, there's well, a rent uh, issue crisis. But uh, so- one
0: challenge, Fred, to to any journalists listening to this, and I know lots of you do. Uh, the idea that the uh, T-shirt came out and said, you know, we need to balance tenants' rights with the landlord's rights. I would love someone to put the question to him because I've, I've done it on social media, but he'll just get annoyed because, <laughs> um, but. How many children do we need to see go homeless before that the balance tips in favor of the tenants? Because we're over three and a half thousand now. We thought at one stage that if we broke 10,000 people homeless, we'd see you know emergency responses from the state. We're heading rapidly towards 13,000. And they know that the step that they're taking now at the end of this month will increase homelessness. Undoubtedly, they know this. So at some level, we have to say, and it's callous to say it, what's the number? Is it 5,000 children? Is it 6,000 children? Because all of those children will suffer from what are called adverse childhood experiences, which are life-limiting in terms of their life expectancy, their educational attainment, and their ability to live full and productive lives. That's what we're doing, and we have to be honest about it. And we should be putting that question to our government at every opportunity.
2: Yeah, and we've just come from COVID, where a lot of children <clears throat> have already suffered because mm-hmm. of the the lockdowns and the disruption to their their education. So uh, it's even more. Pressing that people have secure
0: um,
2: family lives at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I just wanted to put that out there. So, look, thanks, Fred, for for indulging me in in the conversation around that. But I do want to come back to planning. Uh, you gave your um, I I called it yesterday. I thought it was like going to the U.S. Senate. His expert witness <laughs> testimony.
1: It, it was really quite really you you were you were an exceptional public speaker and performer. Exceptional.
2: Um, well, I, ha- I had what alcoholics sometimes refer to as a moment of clarity <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, um, on, but I will I want to I want to frame it through one thing when you did speak to the committee uh TD Emer Higgins said to you Uh, And and, and forgive me because I wrote Lolcano beside this, right? That the bill aims to introduce an efficient and effective, efficient, effective, and transparent way of dealing with the planning process. And I couldn't keep a straight face when that was said because that seems to be the opposite of what I've been told by experts. Give me your overall sense, if you don't mind, of the actual bill itself.
2: Uh, Well, I think we first will have to look at the genesis of it. Hmm. So we need to go back in time to 2016, Christmas 2016, when a new planning piece of planning legislation was rushed through the Dáil uh, to give effect to this SHD procedure, Strategic Housing Development, which was development of more than 100 housing units, uh, uh, co, uh, you know, large co-living units and large student accommodation. Um, uh, and this was supposed to be a fast-track procedure. So if you ever see fast-track or expedited or um things like that in in planning uh, that's when your spidey senses perk up because it usually means there's shortcuts so the shortcuts that they introduced was, was instead of a two-stage application where you apply to your local council and then you can appeal to onboard panala the application would go into onboard panala but before you did that you had a kind of closed-door private consultation with the board the council and the developer to which the public weren't invited or weren't given any very basic information they weren't given access to the plans for example and then once it went into the board there was a mandatory time limit of 18 weeks to make a decision and the public could make their comments within five weeks so uh, yeah nobody really thought about what that meant in terms of planning and procedure Um, the other shortcut was that a lot of developers didn't like the development plans and it was They set it up in a way that you could get permission in material contravention of the development plan so that that included like limits on population limits on density height uh, open space provisions uh, requirements to have good uh, public transport requirements to protect uh, trees and hedgerows and other uh, elements of nature Uh, and uh, there was an understanding seemed to have developed between developers and the board that uh, material contraventions could be just routinely incorporated into development proposals and at the end I think around 90% of SHD applications had some kind of material contravention and usually multiple material contraventions and the board granted them in I think 99% of cases so it became a routine thing uh, where it should have been treated as an exception that was the intent anyway so it was supposed the theory was that this would produce oven ready uh, applications that could be granted very quickly uh, so, But in practice, it turned out that firstly, they were grossly, un- deeply unpopular. People did not want these huge developments in their areas that breached the development plan. They went against the expe- expectations that were set in the planning policy. And developers were basically trying to squeeze as much development as possible out of quite constrained sites in uh, towns and cities and kind of green fields around, the, around Dublin, in and around Dublin and to a lesser extent, uh, Cork and Galway and Limerick. So what happened was that because the uh, because there was a mandatory time limit, the board couldn't fix any problems that were identified during public participation. So if you said there's an issue with traffic or you know, there's something wrong with the daylight study or whatever, the board couldn't go back to the developer and said, well, these issues have been raised, can you deal with it? And that's the normal way we deal with those kind of things in the planning system either had to refuse their grant. And in a lot of cases, they just went ahead and granted anyway. So this kind of deepened the frustration amongst the public because their their legitimate concerns weren't really being taken into account. So what it did is it gave rise, starting about three or three and a half years ago, was a raft of judicial reviews. So people started judicially reviewing these decisions. And which you know is fine, but actually what happened is people started winning the judicial reviews. So, the success rate for SHDs is something like 90%. Hmm. The only ones the board have won are either our lay lay litigant cases and maybe one other case. So, by and large, if you judicially reviewed an SHD, you had a very, very strong chance of success. And it turned out that 96 judicial reviews were taken. So, about a third of all the SHDs.
1: What what cost is that, Fred? Just roughly ballpark.
2: Well, in the last published report from board Panola, they said that they had spent eight million euros in legal fees, four on their own and four on the costs that they had to pay to the applicant who won their case. so huge which, money,
0: which is important to point out because under we always the costs should not be prohibitive to people taking cases. This is another issue that we're looking at that where this where where this thing might become more difficult, Fred,
2: yeah. so like the way it works now is if you win your case, the board pays your costs called cost recovery. If you lose, you only pay your own costs. So it's called one-way cost shifting, and it's actually a very effective way of financing judicial review because Irish legal fees are very high, and that's that's across the board. It's not a feature of planning litigation, so it's a way of actually mitigating that. So, so, so this caused a huge shock in the development community. This was unexpected. They they had set this up to basically facilitate fast-track planning for huge developments, housing developments. And the judicial reviews uh, expose very bad decision making and ultimately expose corporate governance failures. can I ask board.
0: can I ask you the color outside the lines on, on a bit of opinion here because I know during the the process of this, you had a an Excel spreadsheet of these uh, SHDs and you were monitoring them and you kind of, you kind of knew um you know in terms of the 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 scale of them. Uh, did you have a feeling that that there was going to be these issues with them? Because you, you seemed to be preparing to know that you knew that there, there was something was happening here. It was different. You were monitoring for a reason.
2: Uh, yeah, I kind of well, I just I started taking cases and kind of uh, it. You know, it was a lot. It was more like internal research to find out what the to, to look at my pipeline really. Uh, and during lockdown, I had a bit of time in my hands, so I decided to put it onto a Google spreadsheet and publish it. And it's been used widely by developers. Even public bodies are using it. Deaf academics, no, loser,
0: lo- loser podcasters, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I think it, it did help bring a lot of transparency to the issues and to the numbers, and put put actual hard numbers on a lot of the stuff. Because one of the things, like in the kind of public discourses, is a lot of unsubstantiated claims about judicial reviews about the planning system. You know about nimbiest or serial objectors or vexatious litigants. Uh, Which I might add, none of which actually is borne out by actual data or actual objective analysis, that every single case I've taken has been taken by genuine people who were not against development on the sites, they were against overdevelopment. And every single one of those cases that they've won so far have been vindicated because the, the issues that the cases are being won on are based on overdevelopment and breaches of planning law.
0: I just have and to interrupt, folks, to say that we are brought to you today by thecurrency.ie, and if you like their uh, supply guy, uh, I'm sorry, I'm only uh, uh, Sean. Key is <laughs> going to kill me for this.
2: <laughs> uh, I dissociate myself from that comment. Oh, I, I, like,
0: <laughs> Sean, Sean listens and enjoys. I think.
2: <laughs> anyway, so 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 I think I think that the the new pl- the draft planning bill can't be uh, detached from what happened. Um. That there was there was a shock, a shock amongst investors and developers. That how how could this happen? That you know, I uh, you know, money was spent, bets, uh, investments were were made based on a certain outcome, a certain return, a certain probability, and you know, people exercising their rights disrupted that. So, so I I view the, the draft planning bill as a response to that because if you really if you look at what really is in it. The real changes are basically about streamlining and fast tracking. Can, can we get to that?
0: Can we get to that in two seconds? But mm-hmm. also, the crisis in Umbor Planala itself presented, you know, the phrase don't, don't, um, don't never waste a crisis. So, there was an opportunity there also in terms of what's happened there for a minister to say, well, you know, we've We've all had this happening i need to I need to take responsibility and take control, and we've seen this where he's in, in as as i think it was um attractive to put it to us, you know he's given himself the 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 power to agree with himself on certain aspects of this as well,
2: yeah well the board was set up in the seventies as a response to uh political control over planning um and uh it was a legal requirement that the chair was a judge serving or retired high court judge and then over time that was done away with and you know it maintained its integrity and its independence and then there was a kind of a kind of mini scandal i think when in the ray burke era when political appointees again were made and then in recent times there's obviously been the you know well publicized issues of conflict of interest and failure to follow kind of internal governance policies and things like that both in SHGs and, and You know, also in relation to other areas, particularly telecoms, mass for some reason. Uh, And that led to then a a kind of a a, a reform uh, of the appointments process, which appears to be another kind of centralization of control over the appointment of board members, which obviously raises concerns because like the board has to be independent and has to be representative of the broader community, has to have both of those. so um pe- people are worried that that this is a kind of a uh, a way to bring the board back within more po- you know more political control which I think is would be a very bad outcome to the to the response and like the, I think the public service in Ireland that's kind of their natural response is centralization and control to a crisis and you know it's the wrong it's obviously the wrong response because it'll just it can lead to bad outcomes as we've seen.
1: That that leads us back to what Lorcan told us and he said that you're going to be a busy man um, if this gets through. Is is that the case, Fred?
2: Uh, well, the jury's out. Um, the, the draft bill has a lot of restrictions on public participation and access to justice. And the issue is that you know we're constrained by EU law and international law called I need the Air to, house Convention.
0: I, I, need, I need to ask you on that on the Air, So the Law Society also gave gave um, their opinion on this on the same day. I think it was within the day that you were there, and they made the point that a lot of this is already settled law, whether it's you know under our house and under our EU Convention, and yet we seem to be reopening it <laughs> to, to this point. That strikes me as at, at best uh, foolish.
2: Uh, well, I think Sir Humphrey would call it brave.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> onwards, onwards to the to certain to the what is
2: it? Onwards to the great to the great victory of certain defeat. <laughs>
0: it would
1: be oh, yeah. a brave move. So,
2: so like what, so, what happened? What, what happened? Or what has always happened in Ireland? Because we have very high costs. That when if you are an ordinary person, you take litigation, you're threatened with with being put it bankrupt, essentially. Uh, whether it's developers or just state agencies. That's that's the threat, and the Aarhus, its against the Aarhus Convention. It's against EU law. So, um, so what? There's there has been a mad amount of litigation over costs. You know, there's there's like forty high court cases. There's preliminary references. There's a load, a load of case law because it was the it was hotly contested. So the fight wasn't really over the actual planning issue or legal issues. It was always over costs. to Try and get people to give up or. You know, pour encourager les autres, you know, not not to let people think they could get away with it easily. So on the 10th of November, we got a judgment from the Supreme Court that basically said all planning litigation uh, is comes within these special rules that protect people from being bankrupt. Uh, Simple as uh, there's no debate. This is what it means. Uh, Everyone understands that now. So obviously the natural response wasn't to say few Thank God we have finally got legal certainty. The obvious response was to basically take that and just throw it in the bin and start from scratch, because that's that's what you do when you get legal certainty. You know, it's like to say some of us like the litigation. You know, it's like why would you take some piece of legislation that people finally understand and there's no dispute over, which has caused you know millions and millions of euros worth of pointless litigation to get to a, an interpretation that everyone knows and then just abandon it. Well, you uh, know why, Fred? Well, it's, it, it, it's it doesn't control.
1: work. It's about control, isn't it? It's about who, how, who makes the decision about keeping the public out of the picture, and this is done between the government of the day and the developers of the day, and everybody else is kept outside the picture. That is the aim.
2: Uh, it may be the aim, but it's not a lawful aim, because the EU law and the Irish Convention requires the public to be... That's right. To have these rights. They're, they're actual, it's a rights based framework planning mm-hmm. system. You look at it. So, <clears throat> and, 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 cri- and
0: I, critically, the costs cannot be prohibitive.
2: Exactly. So, and because Ireland's a high cost jurisdiction, nobody can afford it. Not mm-hmm. even developers. Like, it's prohibitive for developers. So, yeah, the funny thing is, the, the rules benefit developers just as much as they benefit uh, ordinary members of the public. And if you actually, if you look at what's happening at the moment, there's a lot of developer judicial reviews, but half of them are developers. About a third of all development plans are under judicial review by developers and landowners, and all of them are benefiting from these cost rules. So, you know, it's this isn't just about members of the public or individuals. This is about everybody. And, you know, like the thing is, you can try and basically keep people out, but you can't, like they have rights and they can access court to enforce those rights. And EU law says that if you, if there is a claim based on those rights, the national court has to set aside the the Irish law that conflicts with it. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a foolish approach to put in place these obstacles. So can, so,
0: so can I ask you from the outset, it's not clearly, in my opinion, then efficient, nor effective, nor transparent.
2: The best way to avoid judicial review is make good decisions. Yeah. and and take into and, and talk engage with the, your community at the earliest possible stage like a lot of these developments could have been could have been fixed with very simple changes to them you know they might't have have as many units you might't have make much money but you you would have got people on board they would have supported it and there wouldn't be disputes over it but the fact that there was no public participation or any engagement with the public until it was too late and then the fact that um the decision making uh you know, in part because of the time constraints, was was found to be at fault. There, there are the two issues, and, and if they could be fixed, then the judicial review there is is a is a last resort for the the bad ones. All people will make mistakes, or they'll take a chance. But judicial review is meant to catch that. Where, but if you, can...
1: sorry, Fred, where are we on? The, the European scale now. Some countries are more open than others. Where does Ireland now peer on the openness in the planning process on a European scale? Are we the worst in class?
2: Uh, no. I don't like. We're not not the worst. If you look at like some of the case law from Austria, Germany, Slovakia, uh, it would make Franz Kafka look like um, a Mills and Boone author. There's some very very bizarre procedures and Kafka esque types of. Uh, hoops you have to ju- to jump through to 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 um, in, in six case.
0: in six years it's our first Kafka reference so I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely thrilled
2: but but the kind of the like the overarching thing about this is the European like like the Aarhus Convention basically recognises that. Uh, the public has not only has a right to protect the environment; it has a duty to protect it. Mm-hmm. And then the way it's been interpreted by the European U- uh, Court of Justice is that it, it kind of aligns this public right with the private right of uh, effective remedy and judicial protection. So it it kind of merges public and private rights together, uh, so that so that instead of like relying on, say, the Commission to take enforcement or even your local authority public has a role to play in that enforcement, and that's why we have access to justice. So the the, the the Court of Justice doesn't want to be clogged up with enforcement cases taken by the Commission. It wants us, you, me, your neighbours, uh, and environmental NGOs, it wants them to take these cases. It, it, that's what it wants. That's the policy. And that's the way you protect the environment. So all of this litigation is is designed and was was designed and is intended to protect the environment so anyone who's bringing in legislation or policies that whose only aim is to reduce litigation without uh, you know in and of itself that means they they want to accept a lower standard of environmental uh, protection they want bad development to get through that's that's what these policies speak to me about uh, and that's quite concerning because it completely goes against both the letter and the spirit of the Irish Convention EU law
0: so, so, Fred, if I was to say to you that, um, you know, all of these representations have been made now by, you know, the legal profession, the planning profession, the environmental profession, uh, indeed, even, you know, Lorkin one of the foremost housing prof- professionals and experts that we have. Um Do you think they're going to make any changes to this behemoth of of a document? Again, I'm tempting you into the realm of speculation here, but I am concerned that it does seem to be uh, there. It is such a big, a big document that they do seem content to just literally say, well, we've given it now. It's airing. It's time to ram it through.
2: Yeah, you've had you've had your fun. Now now let's get on with it. Um, Yeah, well, the body language is that nothing's going to change from the Department of Housing. Uh, they are back in on on Thursday for the final PLS session. Um, you know, like they and like the thing is, they've they've kind of they pre-committed themselves to it, kind of politically as well. I think. Oh yeah, no, they, Particularly they, the Greens,
0: they, they, they've literally staked their staked it. Like yes, the Greens themselves have have stake staked a lot of uh credit in getting this across the line and 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 the minister for housing as well himself has has put some you know he needs to do this to get things done
2: yeah so like they haven't left time for any changes so even if even if they wanted to change like the type the 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 oil tanker hasn't been put into reverse yet and it'll take a long time to slow it down <clears throat> so like um but like the message is not just me, like the Law Society, the Bar Council, they've all said that it's it's uh, it's very concerning that these you know restrictions are very vaguely drafted provisions. Can in I, can I, to, I'm
0: going to say something we don't often say. So do local authorities themselves have come out and said this is not this they're they' they're um maybe their their reasons for not liking it are different to you know the the legal uh the, the legal societies as you mentioned but they they're not happy about it either
2: yeah well for them um there's two aspects to it firstly they're diluting uh counselor inputs into the development plan so development plans are going to go from a six to a ten year cycle uh so that means that some counselors may never ever get to make a development plan. And that's like that's about the one power councillors have. Now, you might disagree with it or not, but at least that's the democratic power that they have. And uh, you might not be too happy with the output, or you, you might, but who knows? But you know they have they have it. Uh, second aspect is there's going to be a huge centralization of development plan control through kind of national policy statements. So what they're what they're trying to do is bring in kind of binding policy. That will and then force develop uh county county councils to amend their plans when these policies come out so we had we kind of had a mini version of it on apartment design and uh building height and they particularly the building height ones proved to be uh proved to be disastrous really um because they weren't really implemented correctly or there was disputes over what they actually meant so it's going to be like that on steroids so i think if it depends on the way it's done, but it could end up that the development plan really does. The develop the, the councils have very little um, freedom of, you know, fr- uh, discretion in a development plan. That it could be completely centralised, which which is kind of bizarre because like the the country's population is growing massively. Yes. So it's it's kind of a it, it seems in you know it's kind of inconsistent to but it's increasingly like... increasingly centralise our our.
1: But it's you. You said it yourself, Fred. It's the Dublin Castle ethos: keep them outside the gates. It's it's never been any different, you know. Centralize everything. Leave the leave all the controls centrally with the civil service and the government of the day, and nobody else gets a look. I mean, that's that's the history of the state on pretty much everything. Are you going to be a busy man for a long time in the future because of this? And is it ultimately going to play out in the Supreme Court?
2: Uh well i think it like the bad procedure makes a weak case strong uh and also then if a lot of the preliminary stuff around costs or standing arise they will they will just basically cause a lot of litigation uh it'll either end up in the supreme court or the court of justice and mm-hmm. and like it's a, it's a, it's like a living experiment in an attempt to bring in as many restrictions as possible, and see which oh, ones get which which ones get through.
1: I know you think it's a living experiment, Fred. Mm-hmm. I think it's more um more of the same what they've done with GDP or what they've done with quite a lot of things is is simply to frustrate the process, kick the can down the ears, know that it's taxpayers' money going to end up fighting all this in the Supreme Court, as you said, the Court of Justice. But they're long out of the line of fire, or the individuals who who were involved are long out of the line of fire by the time that happens. And we just let it wash over us and rinse and repeat is what we do pretty much on every single subject.
2: Well, if it's true, it's, it's a pretty poor way to to manage a country,
1: isn't it? It is a very poor way to manage a country, but it does, I mean, again, it's only my opinion, but I see it right across the board well, on different just, aspects.
0: Let's go to the mother and baby home redress scheme and say, you know, we already know, first of all, the, the actual report lost in the Irish courts didn't have to get to the EU courts to for it to be, you know, found to, to not actually represent what the survivors' experiences was, where, and we also know that the European Commission themselves were, you know, unhappy with, with it, and yet, you know, they just drove on anyway. So they just drove mm-hmm. on anyway. anyway yeah, like, Fred, I
2: wouldn't be surprised if there's um, if the commission has to step in on it. Yes, because it's it's so blatantly on. You know, just not allowed.
0: Well, it's
1: undemocratic, uh, really, Fred. In a in, in a in a broader EU sense, if if the public and uh, are, are expected to fight the environmental fight, you can't do it, both hands tied behind the backs and gagged at the same time.
2: Yeah, but you know, the funny thing is, Ireland, Ireland is promoting itself as a venue for international litigation. Uh, and actually, we, we have taken quite a, quite a number of significant international cases because we actually have a very good court system. That's right. Ireland. The
1: judiciary are very well. I mean, I, and, and, Literally, thanks to people like you, thanks to people like Sam McGar, who have educated our education yeah, on the minutiae of all of this.
2: Yeah, but but like they now introduce, they want to basically ban non-Irish NGOs from from litigating in Ireland, like. That that's completely contrary to government yeah. policy, which is to promote Ireland for international litigation. Mm. They're they're blocking foreign com- uh, uh, environmental organisations. It just doesn't make sense.
0: Are, Ireland come for the defamation laws and stay and stay for the the low taxes. But um,
1: yeah. Fred, <laughs> as always, and it's lovely to talk to you and lovely to catch up with you. You are one of the busiest people in this country and you do so much work in the background we only hear it when you're in court we only hear it when like with patrick and other things where when you when you have high profile but we know you are grubbing it out there every single day so thank you for doing that fred and thank you for being who you are
2: thanks les no a real pleasure
0: um, I will say in defence of uh, the, the county councillors I absolutely love the fact that they go on and they say tell you on a Tuesday evening after a meeting that it's all been agreed that that bin is going to be moved six feet and you know we know that <laughs> that's I, I, I
1: feel, Look people give county councillors a hard time Tony I wouldn't <laughs> I, do some the of my job. best friends are county councillors I, I wouldn't I, do <laughs> the job for all the money in the I, world it I, is not <laughs>
0: worth it I, I mock because I do think it's very it's very disempowering to hear you know what I'm saying I'm delighted that that it's passed with unanimous uh, you know uh, strawberry sauce on my, on 99s <laughs> is to be free they literally have been uh, like undermined undermining nothing anyway we I spoke yesterday with Hannah McCarthy who has, has moved from Israel into the West Bank and she is going to be talking to some people there over the next 24 hours and then we'll do a report with us on the tortoise shack so that'll be coming very soon as well uh, so lots more coming your way folks thanks for listening thanks for the support and we will talk to you all very very soon Soon. Take care. Bye bye.
1: Tony and
2: Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.